Welcome to the Race to Value podcast. I'm excited today, listeners. We have another special edition episode as we're recording this one in collaboration with Point Health podcast and its host, Stephen Cutberth. Well, this week, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Tony Dell, who is going to be discussing his new book, The Cure for Healthcare, an old world doctor's prescription for health in a new world. Let's go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Dell as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of the Race to Value and Point Health podcast. I am Eric Weaver. And I'm Daniel Chipping. Eric and I are the hosts of the Race to Value podcast, and we're joined today by Stephen Cutberth of Point Health. Hello. Thanks for the intro, Eric and Daniel. I am very excited for this special joint episode, and I'm especially excited because we get to talk with a close friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Tony Dale. So thanks for joining us today, Tony. Steve, it's a delight to be here and very much looking forward to this podcast. Well, for our listeners out there, we want to get you acquainted with Tony. So we're going to share a quick bio for him and then jump into some really interesting questions. So Dr. Tony Dale is committed to changing healthcare for the better. Prior to moving to the United States in 1987, he practiced family medicine in London. His interest in tackling the business side of healthcare began following his rude introduction to the American medical system when he injured his knee playing basketball and needed knee surgery. So after being quoted an initial price, as we all know, he received a significantly larger bill and was determined to find a way to help people access better affordable care. Thus, he founded the Caris Group in 1996 to help patients negotiate their exorbitant medical bills. Recognizing the unmet needs in the traditional health insurance industry, Tony went on to found Sidera, an alternative medical cost-sharing solution, in 2014. Today, they offer services across America. As founder and chairman of the Caris Group and Sidera, Tony has directly impacted the lives of millions of patients seeking the best possible care at fair and affordable prices. Well, Tony, this is Eric. I guess I'll go ahead and start it off. I just want to say, first and foremost, it's a great privilege to be with you today. I've been following your work for a few years now, and I I thought a good place for us to start the interview would be for us to learn about your early experiences with your father, a family doctor in Taiwan, and how it led you to medicine. Again, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. And I love where you're starting the conversation, because certainly in my case, I was very shaped by my family connections. My, my dad was a family doctor. His dad was a family doctor. And both my father and uh, his father uh, happened to choose to practice medicine out in China, what you might describe as a missionary type of situation. So I grew up in, a, in an environment where values were very important. Some of my earliest memories and very happy memories, I, I can remember being woken up by my dad and him saying, hey, do you want to come with me out to the British embassy? Uh, The British Embassy had an old castle sitting on the the coast uh, just outside Taipei, the capital of Taiwan, and it was a fascinating place, and uh, I loved being reminded of my roots, and, you know, he would go and take care of whatever the problem was for the ambassador or his wife or someone else there, Uh, and, you know, it might be the next day that uh, I would notice, you know, there are uh, 30 people out in the courtyard outside our house, and there's a little basket there at the edge of the door, and people could put in one NT, maybe the equivalent of a nickel. And uh, if they didn't have the nickel, that was okay. Uh, And it really made no difference to to my dad, whether he was looking after the British ambassador, although it made a difference to me. I loved going out and seeing his beautiful grass tennis courts, or if he was looking after the poorest of the poor. And so, you know, those sorts of experiences really shaped my thinking about what medicine is all about. 
Tony, thank you for that. It's a great way to get started. And I'd like to take our listeners to your experiences working as a physician in the UK NHS. And I want to know more about how that impacted your approach to healthcare in the United States. So what was it like practicing in a specialized model? Okay, well, of course, the the model uh, in Britain, in case any of your listeners are not aware, is what many here in the States are trying to move towards. Uh, In Britain, it's called the National Health Service. It's a single-payer system. Everything about the system is owned and controlled by the government. So I was a government employee in that sense, although uh, family doctors, you know, had a fair amount of independence. uh, Essentially, I was employed by the government. Uh, and I, I think it is interesting because uh, obviously our earlier experiences have a significant impact on uh, the way we think about things. So let, let me give you a couple of parallel illustrations from my life. I, I chose having uh, you know, trained at Barts Hospital in the center of London, a, a very well-known and uh, maybe the most ancient hospital in Europe. I'm not sure it was established in 1123, which I always sort of chuckle at. It, it, it kind of puts American history into perspective. In that context, uh, having worked right in the heart of London's downtown, uh, in, enjoyed the, the, the privilege and the uniqueness of, uh, of a training within that environment, uh, I chose to work in a very poor neighborhood that was nearby to the city of London. Uh, again, for those who don't know, the city of London is the financial hub. It, it's you know one of the wealthiest, most exclusive parts of, uh, of the country. Uh, But just bordering it, the East End of London, for any who happen to be uh, British uh, TV series followers, where the program EastEnders was all filmed. Fascinating area, wonderful people, but basically viewed as the uh, trash can of London. It was where people got, unless they were true local inhabitants, as sort of moving down in the social scale as life treated them badly. And I loved practicing medicine in that area. It was fascinating that the true East Enders, those born and bred in the East End, amazing people, mainly hardworking, absolutely intriguing, totally honest. I loved that. And in a context where uh, a medical care is provided by the government, it meant everybody had access. It did not mean that everybody had access to the same quality. So as I looked around what was going on in family practice in our part of London, it really went from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, And ridiculous might be too gentle. We had practices where uh, doctors hardly ever turned up. Uh, They really were just prescription writing machines and where the, the quality of care was extremely poor. And then we had many other practices where the doctors were very dedicated, really trying to give everything they could. But I, I hope I fit in that last category. I was certainly you know, doing everything I knew how to do. But the pressures of the system really shaped you. All of the uh, social issues that were going on in people's lives. You know, uh, I, I might uncover that uh, the reason for their illness was the appalling living conditions they were in. You know, then that would engage one with social workers and you know, trying to get other departments in, involved in helping these people. Uh, but there was no time in a doctor's life for that. And, you know, of course, we had other staff, but everybody was permanently rushed off their feet. You know, when I tell American family doctors that I uh, not only saw somewhere between 40 and 60 patients a day in the office, uh, I also typically did five home visits on top of that and had to deal with paperwork. They can't believe it. And the truth is, it led to bad medicine. When you've got maybe six or seven minutes with a patient, that is not enough time to uncover what's going on with them. And so I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
loved the practice, but yes, uh, the experiences over many years did shape my thinking. As you moved to the U.S., how did that thinking and that experience impact the approach maybe you're taking to healthcare in the U.S.? Well, Stephen, definitely it did impact the approach uh, I've taken over here. Now, it's worth saying for your listeners, uh, I did not move over here to practice clinical medicine. I was by then still involved, uh, you know, when I moved over here uh, in clinical practice, but on a very part-time basis, I was more involved in what you might view as some more academic sides uh, of what was going on. I was doing a lot of traveling both within the UK and internationally, really helping doctors integrate their lives with their work so that they were, you know, whole people treating whole people uh, and really being interested in dealing with the whole person. That was what brought me over here to the United States. I didn't get involved clinically, but I continued doing the work I was doing, working with physicians. And I began to see many differences. For example, uh, one of the differences I found was that American doctors were increasingly intimidated by the system they found themselves in. So when I talked about treating the whole person, really being interested in a patient emotionally, mentally, spiritually, the idea that you, you might treat someone as a holistic individual it wasn't a strange concept, but basically the vast majority of people were not going to practice in that way. They, they felt there were too many dangers that they might get sued. And so I began to pick up those things. But there were other things. Obviously, the, the system over here was a private system. I'd actually done a medical elective over here at one point in my training and had seen a bit of how that worked. And of course, what my, my father ran out in Taiwan, that was more uh, a, a private clinical practice. He did handle patients uh, from every end of the socioeconomic spectrum, but it was all within a framework of what he had chosen to create. But the British system was not that. You were prescribed what you could and what you could not do, what you could engage in. For example, as a physician, I had no access to my patients in the hospital. Really, the, the family doctor was like a, a portal, a gate to passing people on to the specialist. There was no expectation we would get involved in a meaningful way in most chronic care and certainly not in acute care when it got serious. So, you know, there was a lot of the, the medical side that I really missed, you know, having been trained in these things, you want to be able to practice them, but that wasn't allowed really in the British system. But also the economics of what I saw in the UK were so different, and maybe we'll get into some of that with other questions. Yeah, well, that's a great transition, actually, because I think one of the reasons, you know, we were really excited to talk with you is you have a, a book called The Cure for Healthcare, An Old World Doctor's Prescription for Health in a New World. And I think a lot of your background and your, your history really influences, I think, why you wrote the book and what you write about. So I wanted to ask you about the book and, and ask you, you know, what inspired you to write it and what can readers expect to gain from it? Well, thank you for asking. I think the word inspired to write it is probably right because I've written a, a few books before in England and book writing is hard work. I'm at a place in, in my life where I wouldn't necessarily look for more things to do, although my wife would probably disagree with me. I, I tend to be accused of somehow being powered by the Energizer Bunny. But I know that taking on a book is a daunting task. But I had read a book that I'm guessing many of your listeners have read, Professor McCary's uh, The Price We Pay. But I felt that that was a really excellent and articulate expose, uh, peeling the layers off the onion of what's gone wrong within American healthcare, especially in the area of the economics of it. 
But I'm also very aware because of the, the work that I do within Sidera that there's an awful lot that's going right. And that under the surface and increasingly above the radar screen where, where people can see it, there are fascinating examples of the power of the free market that are emerging all over the place, uh, right across the spectrum of what medical care is about. And I thought, you know, having found myself in this unique position of, of knowing many of these things that are emerging the free market on the value of the free market itself, that what I would want to do uh, is find a way to expose that to the broader public. I'm a very strong believer in the concept that if you want change, there are various ways to tackle that. And, you know, most of the people wanting change in America in healthcare tackle it primarily from the policy level. And I got involved with various people. I was working with some policy groups, you know, leading up to the last election and trying to help shape some of the thinking about what medical uh, care might look like. But I really didn't have confidence that tackling it from the policy end was the most effective place to tackle it from. I'd become persuaded that what we need to do is tackle it from the grassroots. But the book is my expression of how we can genuinely bring a cure to the American healthcare system. Well, Tony, I think that's a, it's a perfect title for the book, and I really enjoyed reading it. It, it has a profound meaning for me because I, I just believe that the transition to a better healthcare system in our country is a moral imperative just as much as it is an economic imperative. And there was one quote in your book that connected with me, and you referenced uh, Albert Einstein and his quote, which is stated as follows, the thinking that got us into what we are is not the thinking that will get us to where we want to be. And you go on to say how the answer to healthcare's challenges is not the incremental change to the current system, but it's so much more. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means to you and what kind of change you think is necessary for the U.S. healthcare system? Sure, I'd love to do that. Uh, you know, I was reading uh, an article in a policy magazine, and it was talking about uh, someone up in Washington who they and, you know, the sort of small think tank in uh, environment that they were in, were looking at incremental ways where they could bring improvements. And they were looking for improvements that might shave 1% uh, off the cost of healthcare. Now, I don't want to minimize 1%. You know, when you're looking at something which, you know, is approaching a $4 trillion price tag for American healthcare, I, I'm not even sure I can figure out uh, all the zeros in my mind, but, you know, that would be probably hundreds of billions of dollars that could be saved with a 1% change. But when it comes to healthcare, the areas of waste, of inefficiency, of outright fraud, the way the system has morphed from something that was designed around the patient and the physician to something which is really uh, designed around uh, policies that are enriching some uh, definitely at the cost of others. I mean, the policy I read in, uh, I think it was Health Affairs from back in 2011, its headline said that the salary wages for the last 10 years have all been eaten up by healthcare increases. Uh, and it's not just the 10 years 
uh, that were prior to that article, which would be 2001 to 2011. Uh, it would be the last 10 years. It would be the 10 years before that. For the last 30 years, really the vast bulk of what normally would have been an accepted and natural part of American life in the sort of annual increase in salary and spending power, the, the whole sort of concept that there was a better future for the ordinary American. That was part of the American dream, the narrative that the rest of the world, including myself, believed. Uh, but it, that narrative was being lost here, uh, and it was becoming untrue here. And it's the healthcare system which has sort of morphed into something which is extracting money from people at the very place where they're most in need themselves. You know, those were some of the types of issues that were forcing my thinking and pushing me down this path of saying, there has to be a way to change the system. And the answer isn't incremental. It needs to be dramatic. If you look at something like, let's say, the, the sudden appearance of Uber and Lyft, uh, now, of course, it wasn't that sudden. They, they began from an idea. They started in San Francisco. I think they actually got the idea for it while waiting for a taxi in the rain in Paris. You know, that, that's the nature of ideas. You, you're suddenly there in the rain in Paris, and you're thinking, and I can never find a taxi when I need one. And surely there's a better answer than this. And you happen to be a software engineer, probably a software genius. And, you know, you begin thinking about the power of the internet. And, oh, my goodness, some people carry their cell phones. And surely we could leverage knowing where they are positionally. And all, all of a sudden, before you know it, you have something that within a period of a few years has utterly transformed transportation. Or uh, another example, and then let's bring it closer to home. You know, when someone had the genius idea for Priceline that airlines or hotels, they're left with room space quite often uh, or seat space, you know, at the last minute, let's find a way to, to use up that surplus capacity. And Priceline becomes, you know, a household word. Well, let's come to Dr. Kristen Dickerson over in Houston. She's a radiologist, and uh, if you haven't already had her on your podcast, you may want to. But Green Imaging, which she has launched, is, uh, I think, just such a brilliant idea. She's trying to figure out, she's leading the largest multi-specialty clinic in Houston at, at the time. You know, why do, you know, and just looking at her own staff and trying to analyze costs, uh, you know, why when one nurse goes to one place that they charge $550 for an MRI and someone else is charged $2,500 and she's wondering what's going on. And of course, she's also reading the x-rays because nearly all of those places are sending their x-rays to her and her team for reading. And she's thinking about this and she says, hmm, the Priceline model could work in radiology. There's a lot of surplus capacity out here. I can tell, you know, they've got this particular place has three MRI machines, but we're receiving an average of 15 MRIs a day from them for reading. But their machine's capacity is eight a day, probably. That means they've got fixed costs of, you know, the machinery and of the technicians running it, that they've already well covered their price. But if I could help them fill up the rest of that space, we could do it at far lower prices and it would go straight to their bottom line and I would be doing a great service for the patients involved. So all of a sudden, she begins working through this. Of course, lots of regulatory barriers, all sorts of other challenges. Uh, but now, maybe eight years into her idea, there are 1,400, I believe, green imaging outlets in 40 states. Uh, and she's transforming people's understanding of what is possible in the imaging world. 
And those are the sort of insights, if you like, the little strokes of genius, the sort of thing that came to, to me, if you like, in terms of how I was involved in the system that said there's got to be a better way. And the change isn't marginal. It's not incremental. It's massive. In radiology, she's often able to do things that are fifth the cost of what's going on out there. That begins to make a difference. You know, what we're doing through Sidera in dealing with the major medical costs, the things that, you know, most people use a, an insurance model for, we're showing that a non-insurance model for many people can bring their overall cost down by 50%. You know, th these are significant transformational changes that are possible if we put our minds to it. Well, that, that's a great transition point as well, because actually where we wanted to go was, was around Sidera. And I, I think, you know, you would probably say that was the approach you've taken and the team has taken to healthcare coverage. It was not an incremental change, but, a, you know, a significant departure from the way things have always been done. Could you tell us a little bit about why you started Sidera and, and how you've seen this concept grow in the past few years and maybe where you think it's going? Sure. Let's start with Why? Back in about uh, 2008, when President Obama uh, won the presidency, it was very clear that the country was moving towards some significant changes in the healthcare world. And the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010. And tucked away in the, the language of the 2,000 pages or whatever, there were a couple of paragraphs that related to a, a tiny, mainly unknown segment of the, the healthcare world known as the Christian Healthcare Sharing Ministries. And these two paragraphs exempted these ministries, basically said, I think, if I was just translating, you know, legalese into, into English, uh, that, hey, you guys are doing a good enough job that although it's not insurance, we're not going to insist that your members stop being members uh, and instead we'll exempt them from the individual mandate penalty. Now, I happened to know those Christian healthcare sharing ministries well because uh, it was the methodology I had chosen to use for, for myself and my family. When I first came over here, I came across them and I, I loved the idea of what they were doing, people literally sharing each other's bills in a highly organized fashion. And I thought, I'm willing to risk that. Let's sort of see what happens. And it had been working fine for me from around about the early 1990s to 2010 when they found themselves exempted. So I had 20 years experience. And out of some of that experience had also begun working and helping the ministries, as I think was mentioned in the introduction, with some of their cost containment issues. So I look at this exemption and I think to myself, my goodness, there's an exemption, but it's written in such a way that it's designed to make sure that these groups don't grow. It, it says that only people of faith can uh, be using this approach uh, and that no new models uh, of this type uh, are allowed to be started. Something had to have been in existence prior to 1999. And I thought to myself, this is nuts. If this is really an Affordable Care Act, we don't want to be limiting things that are working. We want to be expanding innovation and actively encouraging it. So I actually began speaking to some of the ministry leaders and saying, you know, you've got this exemption, which is fabulous. I'm glad you have it for yourselves and your members. But why don't we find a way to expand what you're doing 
to take this model into the mainstream and make it available to anybody, uh, people of faith or people not of faith. And surely there are plenty of people of goodwill who we can trust to, in an organized way, share in the medical costs. But I couldn't persuade any of the, the leadership to, to sort of agree with me to move in that direction. And so as I thought about it, I thought, well, Tony, you're, you're probably perfectly positioned with everything you've been studying over the last sort of 15 years to, to go out and create something along this line. And so the next two years were focused on R&D and figuring out the legal and regulatory environment that would put one in. And Sudira was the outgrowth where uh, we essentially found a, a way initially, but because of the individual mandate, only working in the, the group environment because uh, their groups, we, we could deal with the penalty Actually, we didn't deal with the penalty. I don't want to sort of get into the weeds here, but the simple understanding was that uh, for groups to fulfill the sort of group requirements or employer requirements, they had to have what's known as minimum essential coverage, which basically is tied up with preventative care. And I saw here a way that we could make sure that the insurance side was dealt with the preventative care was dealt with, and so the penalties in the law were dealt with, even while we then took all the big bills, the real stuff that insurance should be for, uh, but which has long since stopped being what health insurance is doing in this country. And so we removed, as it were, all the big stuff for these groups uh, and brought them into a member-to-member -member sharing environment where they could handle the big stuff through the medical cost-sharing model. And, and that's really what we've done within Sidera. Tony, so you're obviously an entrepreneur and, and you've had multiple experiences as an entrepreneur in healthcare. And you had previously started the Keras Group. And I'm curious as to what are some of the lessons that you learned along the way that influenced what you're, you were able to do here? Yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't know I was an entrepreneur. When you're trained as a family doctor, you're sort of trained into a kind of a mold. And I'd sort of assumed that's what I'd always do. But I guess there was this innate drive to try and always find a way to make things better. And yes, uh, you're right. Uh, that drive came through. I started the, the Caris Group, which has now become Point Health and, you know, is under other leadership, actually, uh, interestingly enough, from my point of view, the leadership of my son, who is the CEO and uh, is transforming the company. So he must have inherited those entrepreneurial genes and is doing a fantastic job. But it grew out of my experience of the medical system, these very inflated bills when I had my own medial meniscus repair, my challenging the bills, my seeing how easy it was to bring the bills down to a more appropriate cost, beginning to explore the system, thinking I could help these ministries, maybe help them deal with it, then reaching out to insurance companies, helping insurance companies understand what was going on. In those days, this is back in the mid-90s, many of the Major health insurers also offered limited medical benefit plans. And I, I saw a niche there where many people were being stranded because the, the limited benefit was great as far as it went. But if people moved into a place where they had genuinely large bills, which is what insurance should be for, rather than dealing with all the small stuff where it just becomes a hyperinflating tool, uh, the insurance world. In that context, I would step in and, and help those members of insurance companies who had the policies that maybe would only pay out 25000 in a year. And someone ended up with a really large bill, we could help them know how to deal with it. So Keras was a seedbed for studying the industry. And for 15 years in my involvement there and working with 
hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of patients and dealing with billions and billions of dollars of medical bills. I saw the system at work and realized the system needed real improvement. And, you know, when they talked about the Affordable Care Act, I, I loved, uh, in, in a sense, the, the desire. I, I think that the motivation is good. But, you know, as soon as one could begin to see what was actually being shaped, it was perfectly obvious that everything was getting misaligned. Uh, I mean, when you tell the insurance companies that are all private companies that you're going to limit what their profit can be, and I'm not saying that one shouldn't do this, I'm just saying you have to look at and understand the consequences. So when you have a medical loss ratio, for example, which on you know small group market is 20% or large group market is 15%, what that's saying, if any of your listeners don't understand, is that the insurance companies have to show that you know if the medical loss ratio is 15%, only 15% of their revenue can be used for administration and profits, the other 85% uh, has to go directly into healthcare expenditure, supposedly. Well, the ingenuity of people is such, they can always find a way around government regulations. They can redefine things. So, uh, you know, they can put more and more uh, stuff, if you like, into the the other 85% to maximize the the 15% that's left. And I've not noticed that uh, over the last, whatever, 10 years of the Affordable Care Act that the stock price of the insurance companies is going down. I think it's multiplied again and again. I mean, it's dramatic, the increase in value. And you have to ask, where is all this wealth being extracted from? And the system is working perfectly for what it's designed for. And unfortunately, most of the people within the system. I'm talking the doctors, the nurses, even the administrators are trying to do good work, but they don't understand that the system is designed to to let the hospital systems grow ever bigger, to let the big hospital systems buy out the small ones, either with a view of shutting them down and getting rid of the competition, or perhaps taking over rural hospitals, which are struggling. And in in the process, yes, they help the rural hospitals survive, but they dramatically uh, begin to increase the price of uh, what people are paying in those more rural locations. Uh, And, you know, the smoke and mirrors that goes on. I mean, I say to people, I drive by uh, what used to have been called an urgent care, but now I see that it says urgent care and ER. And this place with a doctor and a nurse and maybe a few other staff in there, magically at eight o'clock at night, stops being an urgent care and becomes an ER, and they can charge three times the price for exactly the same care. This is absolutely bizarre. Uh, And the more I saw of this type of thing going on, the the more I said to myself, we have to change it. And I realized that one of the key linchpins that I knew a lot about was what was going on in the insurance world, what's going on in the Christian little niche of the Christian healthcare sharing ministries. Uh, And although neither system was perfect, There were good things you could learn from both and that surely we could give people the best of both worlds and begin to move them into a free market environment where innovation, where basically transparency connected with cash payment. Cash payment is much more than just what it sounds like. When you think about the doctor-patient relationship, what's happening in a doctor-patient relationship is an exchange of value. So that was something I'd noticed in England, that very often, not all the time, but very often, I was not valued by my patients. 
And I don't think it was because I wasn't taking care of them. It was because I was free. And in those days, the patient could even make the determination if I needed to do a house call. They were literally allowed to say, well, doctor, I think I'm sick enough that you need to come and see me at home. You know, it wasn't until later that uh, after I had moved from family practice in the UK that the government came to a more rational realization that that's actually a decision probably for the doctor rather than the patient. But, you know, these sorts of things come to the heart of economics, but also to the heart of quality medical care. When you encourage and build a real relationship where I'm giving value, and if the patient doesn't feel they're getting value from me, they're free to go to a different doctor. So, for example, I, I know when I think it was Keith Smith at Surgery Center of Oklahoma, who I know you've had on this podcast, well, when he was looking at this and he was asked, uh, I think, man, when he was describing some of what he was doing you know, before Congress, uh, but what about when someone sets up uh, an office next door to you and undercuts your prices? Aren't you just encouraging a race to the bottom? And he chuckles and he says, well, I think that's the first time I've ever had someone uh, asking me, what are we going to happen as we drive the prices down? And, and that's exactly what we're doing. The free market is able to drive prices down and quality up. I mean, something that Keith and his colleagues have demonstrated, and which is actually proving itself out all over the country, is that within the healthcare model, not in every case, but when you're looking for normals, the lower the cost, the more likely you're getting excellent service. And so you look at a model like uh, direct primary care, where what, for the price of a cup of coffee every other day on the way to work, you know, maybe $75 a month or something, you can have 24-7 access to your family doctor and the quality of care is fantastic. They've chosen to limit their practice to probably only 500 or 600 patients. Enormous changes can happen quickly when you allow the market to bring that sort of innovative genius, which is certainly a part of the American characteristics to bear, rather than everything having to be designed by central planning. Man, you said so many good things there. I feel like we can go a hundred different directions. I think anyone who's listened to either the Point Health podcast or the Race to Value will resonate with much of what you said. And I think a lot of what you said is true. And I think I think they're there are conversations we need to be having, which is why I'm excited about your book. And I think if anyone listening hasn't gotten it yet, I'd recommend you you find it and, and read it because Tony goes into detail about much of what he's discussing now. I got to know you, Tony, through the Caris Group, where I originally came to work and worked with, with you and Matt, your son. And, and now I'm, I'm working with the Point Health Company and and Matt. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, your legacy at Caris, as you said, you were there, started in 96. You were there for near 20 years. What do you hope to see Point Health accomplish from the legacy that Caris built? And how do you see, you know, the work that, that, that Point is doing, making a difference in, in much of what you just said? Well, I'm kind of a biased father here, uh, both a father to, to the company and a father to the present CEO, Matt. So I'm biased. That's perfectly obvious. But Matt is one of these geniuses who, because he had been exposed to a lot of this when he was very young, I mean, literally in his high school and college days, he was doing part-time work for us within Keris. And he understood and his mind had been, I guess, ruminating on what was going on in the system all these years. Uh, and having gone off, you know, from Keris, uh, you know, once he had gained some experience and, you know, doing a variety of other things, then coming back into this world, he very quickly saw all sorts of improvements that could be made. 
And I think probably the greatest change is the understanding of the role of technology to really make knowledge available. Our CEO over here at Sidera, uh, Jamie Lagarde, he likes to say that all Americans have a, a unique superpower. They're all incredible shoppers. They understand being a consumer. So why don't we put that consumer power to use within the healthcare world and get everything out there where people can see it? I mean, nobody's going to buy a car nowadays without checking the price on the internet. They're going to look and see what the deals are and if it makes any difference where you go. Maybe you can even buy it from Amazon. You know, I don't know. Maybe it'll be delivered to your door tomorrow. The free market does all sorts of extraordinary things. And what you guys are doing over there at Point Health, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Now, of course, I'm kind of an insider, so I have to be careful what I say. But uh, in terms of what I'm understanding of what you're doing and, you know, of the app that you guys have developed and where this is going, you're creating tools that are in the hands of the consumer going to be extremely powerful to help bring a knowledge base to a place where it can bring transformational type change into what people are willing to put up with in the healthcare system. And so certainly, you know, we as a company at Sidera have already been using some of your technology, I know. And what you're leveraging is exactly really the insights that we've leveraged within Sidera, which is saying, hey, yes, people need health care and they need access to health care. But whoever said insurance was the only way you could get that. In fact, I would argue that insurance doesn't guarantee any access. There's massive disparities between, you know, what quality of care or even access to care you have from one city to another if you're a Medicare or a Medicaid member. Equally true if you're a member of Cigna or Aetna. The fact that you have insurance does not mean that you have access. Every person in the country in Britain had insurance through the National Health Service. Okay, but their access might mean they had to wait six months to get a hip replacement or something. So we we have to be willing to look at these issues and figure out how we can give better care, easier access at a lower price. The models that are emerging, and certainly I know with the, you know, thousand plus companies that we work with around the country, we can drive people's costs down, not by tiny percentages, but by large double digit numbers that profoundly impact the company, but more importantly, the employee's bottom line, so that their out-of-pocket costs, instead of these multi-thousand-dollar things, are transformational to the ordinary American family. And instead of the healthcare system getting richer and richer, we can put that money and that wealth back into the pockets of ordinary people all across the country. Dr. Dale, I'm thinking about the concerns and the pushback that that you've probably received from the broader healthcare industry with starting both of these companies and hoping you can speak to that a little bit. Yes. Let me just very briefly outline my sense of how we can most help cure the system. That little spark of genius, if that's what it was, let's call it a, a little light of divine inspiration as I was thinking through the challenges was, what's going to change this? My goodness, ordinary CEOs out there, mom and pop operations, people in charge of a franchise operation, people in charge of, uh, you know, something bigger than a franchise, not just 50 people or 100 people or 500 people, but maybe people in charge of large companies. 
It doesn't matter whether you're responsible for two people, a husband and a wife, uh, or if you're responsible for 20 people, i.e. the owner of a small company, or you're responsible for 100 people or 1,000 people. The CEO, generally speaking, has the authority to direct where the healthcare dollars go. And as I began to think about this, I realized if we could mobilize CEOs to basically fire the system. Now, I got that language from Harris Rosen. Harris Rosen is the founder of the Rosen Resorts and Hotels, uh, mainly in and around Orlando, Florida. Uh, so he was one of the early people to sort of service the Disney World complex, if you like. And he realized as he looked at what was happening, this is going back 25 years ago, that his premiums were going up every year, uh, but he knew because he could see the money that was being paid out on, on payments, their needs were not going up and the cost uh, of his employees was not going up, but he was still being forced to pay higher premiums. So he called in the insurance company and he said to them, why am I having to pay these higher premiums? You should be lowering my premiums. And they said, well, no, you know, you're, you're a part of a group. And he said, what group? You never told me I was in a group. I've got hundreds and hundreds of employees. I'm my own group. He said, no, you know, you, your group is then just amalgamated with other groups. And, and so the risk value of the, the larger group uh, has gone up. And so your, your premiums have gone up just like everybody else's has. And he said, well, then make me my own group. And he said, oh, we're not able to do that. Uh, well, he said, well, okay, thanks. So what you're telling me is that even though it's because of other people, not even in my company, that I've got to pay more. And they said, yep, sorry, that's what you've got to do. He said, that's great. Then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to fire you. Okay, but his genius was he didn't just fire them. He fired the system. He didn't change from a Humana to an Aetna or from a, a Sigma to Blue Cross Blue Shield. He fired the system and he said, I believe I can do this better on my own. He took a, a semi-derelict building tied up with one of his resorts that they'd been using as childcare for some of their employees. They did it up a little bit and they hired a family doctor. Now, that was another stroke of genius. It, this ties into the whole sort of direct primary care movement. When, when your first court of call is a family doctor, that movement on its own will probably make something approaching a 20% difference in the overall cost of that group of people. When you have a doctor directing traffic who understands what's going on and who cares about, because exactly what happened to him is what's happened in the market. His family doctor said, oh, I need to get some x-rays. Well, I'm going to call up a buddy who runs an x-ray place and see what a sort of price he'll give us if we send all of our x-rays over here. And then, oh, now someone needs you know, a cardiac stint or they, they need a hip replacement. Well, I'm just going to make some calls. Well, the free market allows you to move in those sort of directions. And so... What we are now actively engaged in, and really the, the, the book, The Cure for Healthcare, is, is a call to CEOs and others of influence to say that if we direct our healthcare dollars out into the free market ecosystem, this emerging ecosystem, which is thriving and growing, but which, if you understand basic economics, there's a supply side and there's a demand side. For the physicians who want to move into an open, transparent, fair pricing, they have to have a supply of patients. And so those of us who are CEOs, we can help begin to point people in that direction. Uh, and there is emerging all of the elements that are needed so that people can have easier access, as I've described in a direct primary care, but it also applies to all the other specialties, easier access, 
higher quality and dramatically lower costs. So CEOs who are listening to this, come and join the movement. I love it. Again, so many things you said there, whether it be DPC or, or shifts in the industry, um, I think really align with, with much of what we've discussed. And I, I have a DPC, so I, I'm, I'm a fan of them as well and much of the advice you, you provided. You know, I wanted to ask, having worked in this industry for quite a while, having a ton of experience and all of these the intricacies that exist, what do you, I mean, if you, if you were said, you know, hey, look in the crystal ball, what's going to happen? What direction do you see health plans and health sharing organizations and other alternatives to kind of what would, has traditionally been health insurance going in the future? Will they, all, will they all coexist? Do you see that changing? Do you see government intervention pulling back? I'm curious what your outlook is on this side of the industry. Wow. If one just had a crystal ball and could you know, look into the future and say what's going to happen, <laughs> that would be wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't exist. We know where one political party, the Democrats, would like to take us. They'd like to take us uh, over towards a unified single-payer system, and there are certainly coherent arguments for moving in that direction. But I don't have a lot of faith in that as bringing the greatest efficiencies or success. Uh, I've worked in that sort of system. And when I was working in it, I thought it was pretty good. But having had 25 years to reflect and think and look at if there's a way to leverage the power of the free market, I would much prefer to do that because it always ends up helping costs, encouraging innovation. But yeah, it also can allow for greed. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that are really bad. But we don't currently have a free market over here. We have something which is so intertwined between massive entities that like to gobble up and destroy small entities uh, and uh, the even most massive of them all government, which usually wants to control everything, that we stifle innovation. I mean, COVID in one year has done what the last 20 years of legislation and re regulation has struggled to prevent by making it real easy for doctors to just deal with patients over the telephone. This is the sort of thing we need. So if I'm looking in the crystal ball, I think, you know, we've probably got another five or 10 years of really significant infighting between different philosophies and systems. And I have no idea what will win out. What I do know is given the opportunity, the three market can show people how to thrive. You know, what's brought half the world out of poverty over the last 50 years is not the spread of communism, but it's the spread of free market concepts. And as such, you know, if we're serious about bringing wealth and, you know, opportunity, if that lovely phrase from, I'm not sure, one of your founding documents, you know, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is going to become the norm, then we need the freedom to keep experimenting, not just to be told what we have to do. But the trouble is, I think it was Alexis de Tocqueville who, who wrote Democracy in America. He began describing that to keep what they had, the country was going to need the moral fiber that it currently had at that time. And, you know, that's a challenge. And that's a challenge to every society. Anyone who's interested in history just sees recurring cycles of this as, you know, different empires rise and fall. There comes a breakdown when people get too soft and cushy, basically too wealthy, which is what's happened to America. And into that, there needs to be an internal renewal, which allows people to, again, take responsibility for themselves. So what will happen in this country? I don't know. 
But when I came here 33, almost 34 years ago, I knew what the American dream was, and so did most Americans. The tragedy to me is I've been here 34 years and I still know what it is, but I find so many Americans don't know what it is anymore. They don't believe that this country can be better and better year after year and generation after generation. And yet it's led the world in how that can happen. So my hope is in one direction, but I don't know what will win out. Well, awesome, Tony. Man, I think that's a wonderful way to end this conversation. We really enjoyed speaking with you. I think there's been so many great points made. I've learned a ton. I'm sure the listeners have as well. Last thing I really wanted to ask was, you know, where can listeners connect with you online and, and, and get your book as well? Well, thank you so much for asking. Of course, uh, we welcome them connecting directly. If they're trying to understand what we're doing in a more global sense, uh, they can go straight to sedera.com, S-E-D-E-R-A.com. If they want to know more of you know what I'm thinking and writing, they're welcome to go to tonydale.com, Dale being D-A-L-E. Would uh, love to interact and so appreciate this opportunity to uh, be involved in interaction with you and the team and uh, those that you influence. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. And on behalf of uh, Eric and Daniel, I, I just want to thank you as well. And uh, really enjoyed the conversation. And, and again, we learned, we learned a ton. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you.